I ask you please to bow with me to pray. Father in heaven, amazing again for us to realize that here we are worshiping the living God. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for your, your word that leads, guides, informs, reveals, brings grace to us. And so, Father, we pray that it would be all of that uh, for us this morning, that we could reverently sit and listen, and you would enable us not only to understand, but, Father, most significantly even, God, that you would enable us, Father, to believe. So I pray, God, you be with us. Attend reading and hearing, attend listening, attend thinking, attend believing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to 2 Timothy, please, in chapter 2. I want to read verses 8 through 13. Again, we have been here before. One more look. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, please. Hear the word of God. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel... For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless... He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Last week we introduced this purpose of Paul writing to Timothy. It appears as if what Paul is doing is trying to encourage Timothy, call him, invite him, perhaps even command him to come and see him, to see Paul in Rome. Now it's quite a challenge because Paul's in prison in Rome. He is in prison, as he puts it, as a criminal. And so you get the sense of of what's going on there, persecution happening. It's criminal for him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a criminal, in a sense, for him to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he's imprisoned in Rome. And it isn't a happy place. It isn't a good place. It isn't even like the other kind of imprisonments of Paul's experiences where he's been under house arrest and people can come and go. But, But as a criminal, he said, I'm with the criminals. And so you get a sense of what that means for him as well. Now, Timothy, who's known not for his courage but timidity, has now been called, invited by Paul to come to Rome. So, so the stakes seem to be higher now for Timothy. He's in a difficult place in Ephesus, as we've mentioned so many times, that, 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 that there's this big temple to this goddess, pagan goddess, and, and he's in the midst of that kind of community. There's false teachers in, a, in his church he has to deal with. And so in Paul's first letter, he writes to him about how to organize the church, what it means to be church, who the church really is, and all of that. And now he comes to tell Timothy, as we read last Sunday, entrust... In a sense, my gospel, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, entrust this truth to trustworthy men. He tells them that because he's going to say, because now, Timothy, you're going to leave. And I want you to come and see me in Rome. And so with that entrustment to those men, Paul or Timothy could feel free, I suppose, to go. But, but the question that we put was, what can Paul say to this timid young Minister, what can Paul say to Timothy that will give him the courage to enable him to come into the face of persecution? What can he say to him that will cause him to come, to go to Rome, to visit Paul in that place, and, as Paul puts it, share in my suffering? Now, I know you could say share in my suffering. What that means is to visit him. And that's a certain sense in which, yes, there's suffering. We share in someone's suffering when we visit them, when we pray for them, when we, when we carry that burden with them. And no doubt Timothy was being called to do that. But, but it seems more than that. It, it seems that coming into that place as a believer in Jesus could put Timothy in great danger as well. And we know, as we read in the, in the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, that little expression, Timothy has been released. So Timothy must have been arrested at some point in time. And so it could have been here, we don't know. But, but, but the point being that, that here we have it, that Paul is calling Timothy to share 
in a very real way in the sufferings. What can he say to him to give him the courage, the strength to do that? So he speaks to Timothy about the faith that Timothy has, his heritage, his grandmother, his mother, and all of that. He speaks to Timothy about the gift that he's been given and the prophetic word that was announced and pronounced at his ordination, if you will, that yes, he has this gift to be this pastor, to be this evangelist. Yes, that gift is his. He tells him of the spirit that's his. You haven't been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Timothy, that's the spirit that lives within you. And, and then he says to Timothy, be strengthened by the strength that is in Christ Jesus. So he says there's strength. And the good news is, Timothy, this doesn't come from you. The strength that's given comes from grace. That is, it's a free gift. You haven't merited it. You, you haven't earned it. You haven't, you haven't got it within you. But it comes from God by way of grace. It's free. And it comes because it has been bought purchased by Jesus. It's the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, you're in Christ Jesus. You're united to him. So he will give you strength. Trust him. As the prophet Isaiah put it, Wait upon him. Trust him. Seek him. Believe him. He'll help you. He'll strengthen you. The question then was, how does this grace that is in Christ Jesus come to us? What's the means by which we receive this grace? Now, In our tradition, we speak of the means of grace, of God's word and sacraments and so forth. Paul just seems to sum it up in this verse 8, as we saw last Sunday. He simply says, remember Jesus. It's his grace that comes when we remember Jesus. We remember Jesus by way of the word. We remember Jesus as we were around the table last Sunday, the sacrament of communion. We remember him points to him, it focuses attention upon him. And what Paul says we're to remember about Jesus, that he's risen from the dead, descendant of David. And remember this word that Timothy says, he's risen from the dead, which means he's the son of God. He's risen from the dead, which means sins are forgiven. He's paid for sins, thus he's free to go because he doesn't have any sins in himself. And, and though he's able to pay this hell, this wrath of God, take it upon himself for us, those who believe in him, therefore, and, and not only is he raised, but he's the first fruit of all who trust in him, which means that we too will be raised. Our resurrection is guaranteed by his since we're in him. So Timothy, if you come into this situation, even if you're killed, don't worry, you'll be raised. Even though you die, yet, if you believe in me, Jesus said to Martha at the scene of her brother Lazarus' tomb, even though you die, if you believe in me, yet shall you live. And then he said he's a descendant of David, which means he's like us. He's, he came in the flesh, and as one like us, he's able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. He, he knows them intimately. He lived them. And, and so, Timothy, if you come into this situation and you, and you feel weak, don't worry. Jesus knows that. Call upon him. He'll strengthen you. He gets it. He understands your circumstance and situation better than you do. He will be there to help you at every point in need. And not only that, as a descendant of David, it means that he rules and reigns because he took David's throne. And so, Timothy, as you come into this situation, understand that Jesus, who rules and reigns, is sovereign over this whole situation. So if you do come into suffering, if you do come into persecution, understand that that's not out of the reach of Jesus, that if he's allowing that to continue and to happen, if he's ordained indeed that to take place in this time, in this place, and you're here, Timothy, trust him. He's sovereign over all of that. And you can depend upon him that through that, God will be glorified and you will be blessed because he's sovereign and he therefore is able to work this whole situation for the glory of God and your good. Trust him. That's what he says to Timothy. Remember, remember Jesus. And then Paul goes and makes it very, very personal because he speaks of his own life. Notice in verse 10. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's saying, I'm enduring everything. And when he says that, he means all of this suffering. I'm enduring this imprisonment. I'm enduring being bound by chains like a criminal. I'm enduring all of that, right? I'm enduring all of that, he says, for the sake of the elect. Now, it's an interesting expression, that word elect. It's a common one throughout the scripture, especially in the New Testament. Jesus uses it. He uses it of those who are his followers. For instance, uh, in I had some passages here, but I don't see them. In Matthew, in chapter 24, Jesus speaks of those who are the elect, the very elect of God. And, and he, he puts it to them uh, that they are his followers. I can't, uh, I don't know. If you find that, let me know. Oh, here's one. Verse 31. And, and Jesus is talking about his own coming. And he says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. A word that Jesus uses. And, and he speaks of these who are elect. We know Paul uses this word often, chosen, but a common word, elect, the very elect of God. In fact, as Paul writes uh, to Titus in the next letter that we have in the New Testament after 2 Timothy, Paul speaks of the elect of God. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And so we see this, this, this expression throughout the New Testament. The elect. Who are the elect? Those are the ones chosen by God. Those are the ones who have been or will be saved. Now, what makes it interesting, as Paul uses this expression, is that if all these people are the elect of God, then they have been or will be saved. So if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, why should I suffer? I mean, why should I go through all this if God has already said, they will come to me? Well, it appears as if Paul doesn't even think like that. He uses this expression, which is an expression for believers, and it's an expression from believers who, who speak of our salvation from God's perspective. We talk about our conversion. We speak of it, in a sense, from our perspective, how we explain it, how we understand all the things that happened and what we thought and all of that. So someone tells about their conversion. They're, they're speaking about their own experience of this. But when, when, when we think of our salvation from God's perspective, we understand, we're, we're called his elect. And that tells us that no matter what we've experienced, no matter how we explain it, the truth of the matter is that God's been involved in all of that. He's the initiator. He's the chooser. He's the mover. He's the one that worked in us. And we get that. We understand that. Because we look at our own lives and we look at those who do not believe and we say, I don't know of any difference between the two of us. I don't know why I should believe and this other one shouldn't. And then the, the, the word comes to us, well, psst. God has been at work. So I know the only reason that I have come, could come to faith. Paul knew the only reason he had come, could come to faith. Paul knew that the only reason Timothy had come, could come to faith was that God had been at work. I create other questions, I know, but take that as far as there. And we get it, we understand that. And so Paul refers here to the elect. Now, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just say believers or Christians or those who would believe or, or, or some other kind of... Why does he use this very technical expression that means that God is involved in the salvation of his people that he chooses? Why would he use that expression, especially in the context of suffering? Wouldn't you think it would cause him to draw away from suffering, thinking, oh, they'll get it, they'll be saved. But it doesn't do that at all. It's as if Paul is saying, this knowing that there's the elect actually motivates me to suffer for them. Why? Because it's guaranteed. Because I know my suffering will be purposeful. 
I know that there are those out there whom God has chosen to be his, and I'm in the gathering job, and so I go out to get them. Now, that necessitates suffering, but I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do it because I know that my suffering is purposeful. I know that this is God's way to gather them. And because I know that it's God's way to gather them, then I'll do it with joy. That's Paul's sense of what you said. And so he's expecting Timothy to hear this, and he's expecting Timothy to say, Oh, good, I'll join you too for their sake, for the sake of the elect. Because I know that there's people in whom God is at work and will work. And and I know that his means is for the gospel to come. And I know for the gospel to come, some must suffer. So I'm willing to do that for their sake. And that should inspire him. Better than saying, for those perhaps who might believe, maybe there's some out there. Might work. I don't know yet. But Paul says, no, 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 no. I know this is God's deal. I know that Jesus is sovereign all of all of this. I know that this suffering is for purpose. And I know because he's called me to be an apostle that my suffering, therefore, is so that the elect will come and be blessed. And in fact, Paul knew this from the very beginning. You might remember when he was arrested by Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was knocked off his horse and all of that, when he was on his way to persecute Christians. You remember that, that he was blinded by the light of Jesus and he was taken into the city by his friends and, and God called a man named Ananias to, to minister to Paul to go to Paul and to explain to him what was up and, and you might suspect that Ananias was reluctant to do that because he had heard of this man whose name at that point was Saul and he knew that Saul was a persecutor of Christians and so now God is saying to Ananias I want you to go to him and Ananias reasonably says to God are you sure Because I know what he does when he finds people like me. And God says, no, 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 I've got it. And here's what he says to Ananias to say to Saul. He says, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. So you get a sense there, not only in Paul's life, but you get a sense there that in order to take this gospel It wouldn't be unusual for those who take it to suffer. In fact, Paul makes this statement in Colossians, in chapter 1, in verse 24. He says this. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, now notice what he's saying. First, he says he rejoices in his suffering, which is a whole other category and we'll come to. But he said, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now the question is, what does that mean? That he's making up, if you will, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now nowhere in the scriptures does it speak of Jesus and lacking all in the same expression. Because the work of Christ lacked nothing, that is to say. And when Jesus said it was finished, it was then when it's reported that he has made propitiation for our sins, big word, atoning sacrifice in some translations, propitiation for our sins, that that word means that the wrath of God has been satisfied so that when Jesus died and propitiation happened, it meant that God's wrath was finished. It had been satisfied. We could put it like this. For those for whom Christ died. Or we could put it like this. For those who would believe. Or we could put it like this. For the elect. Any of those work. And so it had been satisfied for that people. So it was finished. It was done. There wasn't any, any, anything else to do. There's, 
There's no longer any need for penance, for instance. It's all been paid. There is no longer any redemptive suffering, meaning that the suffering of another is necessary for redemption or for our, the purchase of our souls to be, to be paid. There isn't any need for that. And so, so, so what does Paul mean that he's making up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus? This, that in order, if you read this context, in order for this gospel to go forth, it may require suffering. And so he is now going to take the arrows and spears of all those who would normally be firing at Jesus. In other words, if Jesus were in himself bringing this, there would be those who would hate him. And in hating him, they would come after him just like they did before. But now I identified with him. I, his representative, I, his ambassador, I'm taking this out so that now I'm getting all the swords and spears and arrows that, that would come at Jesus. One uh, commentator put it like this. He said, the world hated and afflicted Jesus without ceasing. But since he's not here, their errors of persecution, and especially for him, strike his followers by virtue of spiritual union and identity with him, as well as our commitment to him. We endure the persecution and affliction that he otherwise would experience. What the world believes is lacking in his suffering. We fill up. We bear the afflictions which are still intended for him. Mark 13, 13 states the words of Jesus. You will be hated for my name's sake. That's just true. So Paul knew that. And he said, that's what I'm, that's what I'm filling up. These afflictions. It's going to cost. There'll be sacrifice. There'll be suffering in taking this gospel. And Paul says, I rejoice in doing it because it's for the sake of those for whom Jesus died. If he loved them, to die for them. I love them to be persecuted so that they can hear this word of the gospel. And, and there's something too, you see, in the means by which this method goes. See, Jesus said, no, servant is greater than his master. He said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And you just know that. It's just true. And so you see, when people see the very people of God willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, what does that say? When people see the, the people of God willing to suffer for the sake of people so they would hear the gospel and come and believe, what does that say? It says we carry the mark of Jesus. We're like him. Now, our suffering is never atoning it doesn't buy anything for anybody. But it illustrates something. It illustrates the very love of God. His love for them through even us. And so this very one who died and suffered. Wouldn't it be odd if his people would say, Oh, Jesus suffered. I'm never going to get hurt for anybody. But aren't you identified with Jesus? If that's what it takes, aren't you willing? John Piper puts it like this. Lengthy quote. Listen. It says, Paul's sufferings complete Christ's afflictions. Not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they're deficient in worth, as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's affliction is not known and trusted in the world. These afflictions and what they mean are still hidden to most peoples. And God's intention is that the mystery be revealed to the nations. So... The afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. They must be carried by ministers of the word. And those ministers of the word complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, extending them to others. But then he goes on. The most amazing thing about Colossians 1.24 is how Paul completes what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He says that it is his own sufferings that complete Christ's Christ afflictions. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I complete in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. This means then that Paul exhibits the sufferings of Christ by suffering himself for those he's trying to win. In his sufferings, they see Christ's sufferings. Here is the astounding upshot 
God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross is the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. Our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. Since Christ is no longer on the earth, he wants his body, the church, to reveal his suffering in its sufferings. Since we're his body, our sufferings are his sufferings. And then he quotes a Romanian pastor, Joseph Tan, who said this. He says, I am the ex- an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It's not my suffering. I only had the honor to share in his sufferings. Therefore, our sufferings testify to the kind of love Christ has for the world. When I was in seminary, this Romanian pastor came to visit. Uh, He had been out of prison for some time. Uh, The persecution had stopped. He had come then to the States on a speaking tour, as people do, and and, uh, he shared an experience with us. That, uh, that he had, he said he was beaten once, he was arrested for his faith and was taken on Good Friday and beaten. And he said he told to his guards at the end of that time, thank you for beating me on this day so that I would know and be able to share in the sufferings of Christ. He said that guard came to faith. See, that's the cost, perhaps, of what God may call his church, call us. He has called others to the course of the history of the church. I often think if Paul visited us, visited the church in America, he would wonder if we're really the church. Followers of Christ, he would say, I bear, as he tells the church in Galatia, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. That doesn't mean we should go out and ask people to beat us. You just wonder, don't you? What's going on? Why this reprieve? Why this pause? We rather like it, but I wonder. Paul goes on then to apply all of this not just to himself, but to others. In, in fact, they had been probably singing it, this little expression that begins in verse 11. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. You'll notice in your Bible, it's kind of marked off as poetry in that it, it is. So it, it's likely that this was a Christian hymn or at least a creed of some kind. So Paul is sort of taking it from their tradition, if you will. They had been saying it. Who knows, perhaps he had written it earlier or, or some other apostle had given it to them, but, but somehow it was written down. There was, he said, now this is really true. This is a trustworthy saying. You've been saying this singing this for quite some time. The church knows this. This is really true. You can depend upon this. He says, listen, if we've died with him, we will also live with him. And you think, Paul, when, would, when did we die with Christ? Well, certainly for those who had or would be facing martyrdom, Paul himself, as he's in prison and he's soon to be killed, we believe. They would get it. They would understand. Yes, of course, if we die with him, we have died, those who have died. And if we die with him, we'll live with him because he's the resurrection and the life. And so don't be afraid of death. Don't worry. The stinger's been taken out. You'll be raised. This isn't it. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes about the resurrection of Jesus. They seem to deny resurrection at all, that there'll be any resurrection at all. And he said, no, 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 since Christ has been raised, then we too will be raised. And he says, if if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're to be pitied because then we won't be raised. And And Paul says, if we won't be raised, then I'm really an idiot because I'm suffering in my body. And if I don't think that I'm going to be raised. If I think this is it, if I think this life is it, what a fool I am to spend my life being beaten, to spend my life being imprisoned, to spend my life being despised by others, to spend my life. What a fool I am if this is it. But Paul says, this isn't it. 
there's so much to come in the resurrection that I can spend my, I can give, I can suffer even here, knowing that a day will come when for all of eternity, I'll be alive. But not only that, all believers have already died. Not physically, still here. Keep breathing, that's good. A woman did die in my church when I was a kid. I should tell you that story sometime, right? In the church, that's a whole other thing. You don't want to know that now. But we have died. When did we die? We died when Christ died. That great spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord as many layers? But one answer to that is yes, I was. For when he died, I died. For instance, in Romans in chapter 6, Paul puts it like this. In verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The wages of sin is death, he'll go on to say. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's the point, you see. We have died. When he died, there's a sense in which we died with him, so that our sin is already Dealt with. You remember, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. One of them was slaughtered by the priest, the blood of which was taken into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the mercy seat. Do you remember there was another goat, the scapegoat? Do you remember on that goat, the priest would take his hands and he would press against the head of that goat and he would confess the sins of the people upon it. And what would happen in that confessing of sins, what was being shown there is in some sense he was transferring the sins, the guilt of the people onto that goat and then it was set out into the wilderness never to be seen again. And they could actually see their sins trotting off. You know, it's good, they're gone. The guilt of their sin just gone. And so you see, when Jesus, when Jesus died, the Father took, pressed upon him the guilt of our sin. It was there. We, and the guilt of our lives, we were in him, you see. He stood for us. He, he died for us. That is one of the greatest two words. For us. Christ, for us. He did, you see. And so we died when he died. What does that mean? That means that our resurrection really is guaranteed. Why? Because our sins have already been paid for. So, so, so the stinger, as Paul puts in 1 Corinthians 15, has been taken out of death. Because the law, as it comes to accuse us, accuses, but the Father says, there's no case here. It's already been dealt with. The slate is clean, and so we'll be raised. And so, so they would sing, you see, as this group of people, Paul says, you can trust this song. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. And then he says this. He says, if we endure, we'll also reign with him now. He says, listen, if you endure, if you endure the suffering, if you persevere to the end, then there's something coming. You will reign with him. You remember Jesus, for Jesus, endurance was significant. When he talked to his disciples about being his followers and following after him, he, he, he would say to them that you need to endure. For instance, on one occasion, he spoke to them and he says, listen, 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents, as innocents and doves. Beware of men, they'll deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And he says, they'll deliver you over, but, but don't be anxious about what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will help you in that hour. But then in verse 22, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, this isn't a once and done. This isn't a, oh yes, I'll follow Jesus and then forget about it. This is life. And he says, if you endure to the end, then you will be saved. In fact, he told that parable, the parable of the sower, as we call it, the parable of the seed, perhaps we could say. And he explains this parable. He said there was some seed that fell on rocky soil. And here's how Jesus explains it. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 20. He says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word of God, immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root within himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So this song was reiterating the very message of Jesus. He who endures to the end will be saved. Don't let this trouble come and snatch that away. But, but endure, you see. Endure. Now by this, Paul isn't implying that those who are truly born again can lose their salvation. He says we, he's talking about this sort of royal we, he's kind of including everybody here in a literary kind of way. But his point is, 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 is this, this good word, you see. If we endure, we will also reign with him. What does that mean? What does it mean to reign with him? Now, I must confess, when I think of reigning, I think of a big chair with me decorated on it. And everything I want is right there. And whatever isn't there, I say, go get it for me. Okay? That isn't reigning with Jesus. You remember what I read from Mark chapter 10? Jesus said, now, what Bill just described is reigning from a Gentile perspective. From a worldly perspective. Here's how I reign. I serve. So there's a sense in which even as we live now, we serve. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He says, you want to you reign with me? That's how I rule and reign. I rule and reign by serving. Even now, he intercedes for us. Even now, he's, he's at work, he says. Sovereign over everything. Uh, having been ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns over everything for the sake of the church, for the sake of his word, for the sake of what he's done. And so he's ruling and reigning. He's serving even still, which is an amazing thing to think. And he says, you come alongside me, you'll get to serve. Remember when Adam and Eve in the garden, what were they to do? They were to take dominion over the earth, which means they were to serve. Were to serve it and to serve God. And he says, okay, now serve now what that means in serving me now is that you may have to suffer. But a day will come when you'll be raised and you'll serve and there's no suffering at all. You'll reign with me. Hang in there. What you were made for will be seen in all its glory. But then he says this, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Remember, Peter denied, but Peter repented. So he speaks about this kind of denial. He's talking about the kind of denial that's, that's, that's really at the heart. That's a continual denial. And he says, listen, if you deny me, as he said on another occasion, Jesus did, if you are ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. He says, if you deny me, I'll deny you also. If you're faithless, I'll be faithful because I have to be because I'm who I am. I can't deny myself. Now, what does that mean that he's going to be faithful even if we're faithless? It doesn't mean that he'll save us anyway. It means that he'll fulfill every promise that he's made. One of those, if we deny him, he'll deny us. That's a warning to us. For those of us who trust him, we go, yes, of course. But please understand, doesn't he guilt on you if you said, oh, I should have shared my faith once at work and I didn't, I denied him. Oh, I'm sunk. You really should have shared your faith in a particular situation. Repent. Confess. Forgiven. Again, this is a denial at the very root of our lives to say, I don't know him. 
The question is, if this was a creed or a hymn in the early church, when was it said or sung? Tradition tells us it was said or sung at two instances in the worship of the church. The first instance was when people were facing martyrdom. The church would sing it. The church would say it. You got a sense too that even as those who went to be martyred would have this in their minds perhaps on their breath. What a great comfort. If I die with him, I'll live with him. If I endure, I'll reign. If I deny him, he'll deny me. Don't deny him. If I'm faithless, don't be faithless. He'll be faithful. Everything that he's promised, if I die, I'll live. If I endure, I'll reign. Everything that he's promised, he'll be faithful to. Therefore, I'll cling to that and I'll go to my death. You get the sense of this old pastor, Polycarp. You remember him. I always remember his name. Polycarp, many fish. Polycarp, pastor, bishop in Smyrna, was a disciple of the apostle John, second century. As he was going to his own death because of his faith, he said, 80 and 60 years, he's been faithful to me. How can I blaspheme his name now? And so he went, in fact, tradition says that, that when he went to be, to be burned, they were going to tie his hands and he said, no, don't do that. He'll enable me to endure. But there he was. Another question, or the second, before I get to that. Yeah, I got time. The second place this was sung or said was at baptism. I believe babies were baptized first century church, second century church. So even as a baby was being baptized, oh, with a baptism that was, was there, and if this were sung, then this was saying, this is, this is what's true for any who profess faith in Christ. This is what we're saying about this little one. Uh, there is promise of God, and, and, and so what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if this child believes what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that if this child dies with Christ, that's what this baptism signifies. This child will live with him. If this child endures, this child would reign. If this child denies, God will deny this child. This child is faithless. Remember, God will always be faithful to his promises. Everything that he's promised in this baptism is true. Though if one were coming as a convert and one hadn't been baptized and was being baptized at this moment, then, then what the church would be saying in the midst of this baptism is, is here's what's true, you see, concerning this gospel. This was what this really means, that you've died. And if you believe you've died, then you'll live. If you endure all that's to come, and in that culture, that would mean something. You endure all this to come, perhaps the suffering that's to come. He'll reign with him. If you deny him, he'll deny you. If you're faithless, he'll be faithful. Because he must. Because he can't deny himself. Can you imagine? Now the question for me is what's this really mean for us? First this. Jeremiah, in chapter 12, different context in the life of Jeremiah, all that's going on. But Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5, God says to the prophet, because he's complaining a bit, Jeremiah is, about his own lot, his own suffering. Jeremiah didn't have a happy life for a great deal of it, as you know his calling, called the weeping prophet. But God, in the midst of Jeremiah's complaint about his own suffering, says this, if you have raced with men on foot and they've wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? In other words, he says to Jeremiah, you ain't seen nothing yet. And if this, what you've been through, is wearying you, then you're in significant trouble. 
as I think about my own life. And it isn't that we haven't seen some difficulty, some suffering. In our culture, it hasn't been so much physical or whatever as Paul experienced it being put in prison, but we all know the sufferings of life and all of that. But if, if that wearies us, what will happen if this ever comes to us? Whatever hap- what will happen if God would count us worthy of the kind of suffering that Paul and Timothy were to experience? What would happen? I can't help but think this. But the words of Jesus when he says, for those who have been faithful and little will be given much. Those who are faithful and little, we've been faithful, I trust in little, I don't know, but I trust we have. But, but, but have we been faithful in little so that if this comes and we'll be ready, we'll be prepared, we'll walk into it and say, yes, I'll embrace this for the sake of the elect. Yes, I'll embrace this for the glory of God. Will we? And I think, do we complain just about the little sacrifices that we have to make to teach our children or to help our kids or university students or international students or, or sharing the gospel in the place in which we live or even sacrificing to send or sacrificing to build a facility? How is it that we're being faithful in these little things? You see, the truth of the matter is that following after Christ requires sacrifice. This dying to our own conveniences and self. And the question is, have we been faithful even in the little things to which we've presently been called so that if God counts us worthy, we'll be faithful in much. So, I make lists. Of all the things to which God has called me now to be faithful, am I being faithful in those things? Is it my joy and my delight even in those things to the degree that it causes me to sacrifice? Am I willing to embrace sacrifice so that the elect in the community, the elect in our world will come? Have I been faithful? Can I mutter in my own head from my own lips and receive comfort? If I die with him, I'll live. If I endure, I'll reign. If I deny him, he'll deny me. He is faithful. And does that comfort my soul? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that we would, in fact, be faithful in all that you call us to and the little things, if you will, So we pray, God, for your grace that you would enable us. Enable us to really live. And we may know, as Paul spoke, of the fellowship of your sufferings, not only the power of your resurrection, but the fellowship of your sufferings as well. So, Father, enable us to drink deeply of knowing Christ. Father, for those who experience suffering because we live in the world that we live in a world where there's disease and illness, we pray that you would be with them. We pray especially for Tim and Gwen Belcher this morning as they learn of their little boy's diabetes and Father, that you would give them grace uh, to know what to do and to be wise and to trust you and be with little Thomas to bring healing to his body. Father, for Becca, Madeline, and Jim Van's daughter, we Pray that uh, you would help her with her recovery from surgery for uh, Mark Jarbo's recovery as well, Father. Be with them. And others, Father, who are suffering in these ways that they may even rejoice because they know that they have all things through you and their strength will come because they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. Father, we thank you for those who are doing missions apart from our own country. We thank you for Jane and Scott and their work and their ministry. We pray your blessing upon them. Father, that while they're in the States, that they'd be refreshed to go back and whatever it is that they would face here, face there, that they would do so in such a way that would be uh, for the sake of those who would come to know you and have. Father, we pray that you would 
cause us as a church to be, to be faithful. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of uh, our Sunday school classes coming and I remind you of our time together tonight at 7. Please, please come. Receive this now as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy help and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigned. Shelters thee under His wings, yet so gently sustained. Hast thou not seen how all thy longings have been? Granted in what he ordained. Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Thunder unto what the Almighty can do. If with his love he befriend thee. Praise to the Lord, let all that is in me adore him. All that has life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the Amen sound from his people again. For we adore him. You are dismissed.